Hello and welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan and this episode was recorded live during International Dark Sky Week. Now, whilst it may no longer be International Dark Sky Week, that doesn't mean there's nothing in this that you'll find interesting and things that you can do even though we're not in International Dark Sky Week anymore. Kielder Observatory, of course, is situated in the Northumberland International Dark Sky Park, and we linked up with a dark sky park about as far away as you can get from Kielder on this planet. We linked up live with New Zealand and with Gareth Davis from Dark Sky Network New Zealand and Nalani Davis, who is the Vice President of the Royal Astronomical Society of New Zealand and an International Dark Sky Association board member and Nalani was one of the driving forces behind making New Zealand's Dark Sky Reserve Aota Great Barrier Island happen. We're also linking up with the Royal Observatory Greenwich and astronomer Dr Ed Bloomer, who is on hand to explain how we can still enjoy the night sky, even in the brightest of cities. Plus, we have a challenge for you. We want you to head outside, wherever you may be in the world, doesn't matter how light-polluted your city or town may be, and take a picture of what the night sky looks like above wherever you are. So all this and more to come. We answered some of your questions. This was recorded live on Facebook. You can watch the video of this podcast on Facebook if you wish, but sit back and enjoy uh, the discussion that we had with uh, Nalani Davis, with Gareth Davis, with Dan Pye and uh, our astronomer as well, Elite McDonald, who uh, we're all here to, to answer the questions that were put forward by our viewers and listeners. And we start off with Dan Pye, who explains a little more about what the International Dark Sky Park in Northumberland is and where it sits with the other dark sky parks around Europe. So we are a gold tier dark sky park um, and a 1500 square kilometre size. So... Um, that makes us the largest dark sky park of uh, a gold tier standard in Europe, um, but the third largest dark sky park in, sorry, second largest dark sky park in Europe because there is a silver tier. Uh, <laughs> and that silver tier is currently in Croatia, which is a 3,000 square kilometer size. Um, so a little bit larger, but not as not as dark as what we are apparently so <laughs> okay and let's compare that with new zealand then um nanaini what, what's the uh what's what's the level of of dark sky that that you you're able to lay your eyes on um in in where well, you're the sort of far tip of new zealand aren't you near auckland yeah so we have four uh compared to your 19 we've only got four international dark sky accredited places the first one is actually in the South Island called Tekapo. That is also a gold tier reserve. And it, it, it's, it's, uh, there are two parts to it. One is being dark and the other is to have a big sky. And Tekapo has both of them. So it's, it's fabulous. It's dark. But the second one is a sanctuary, which is an island, which is where Gareth and I worked and converted them to an international dark sky sanctuary. And that is you can't get any darker than that. Uh, I have uh, one of the things I have done is measure the uh, sky quality, and it gets as high as twenty one point eight, which is the highest natural night skies. And the reason for it is there is no street lights on the island. There, there are no regulated uh, utility uh, electricity. So as a result, it is as dark as it gets. Um, so th that's the, the dark side of it. And there are two other places, Stewart Island, which is a, another sanctuary, dark sky sanctuary, and a small place in Upper North, Upper South Island called Waiiti. So when it comes to just pure darkness, I think New Zealand is really, really dark. We also have a home, Gareth actually is from Wales. We have a home in Wales, in Cairn, which is in the Brecon Beacons National Park, which I believe is a silver tier reserve. And that, those night skies are not quite as dark as what we see in New Zealand. So we are very blessed with really dark skies. Uh, Ian, did you get that slide I sent you that sort of compares I, UK to New Zealand very clearly? I, I did. I did get the slide. I'm just sorting it out now um if you just hold, hold the line caller as we live say. tv everyone that's right yeah it's uploading as we speak i've got it i've got it i've got it uh, oh, here it is there we oh, go look at that 
So, so talk us through contrast. this, and this is this is the, the the contrast in the light pollution between the UK on the left and um, the uh, New Zealand on the right. So, it looks like if you're in the if you're in the north, uh, Nalini, you're in you're in an area that's relatively polluted for light, really, given all that. I, we live in the most polluted little spot in all of New Zealand because we live in Auckland. A third of New Zealand's population lives in Auckland, and our home is just four kilometers from the central business district. So we live in the most light-polluted spot. But if you compare the two, uh, what what's so stunning between the two images is in the UK, you know, you're a lot more polluted as a country than New Zealand, and you have 17 Ida National Parks, whereas in New Zealand, we only have four. And to be honest, that was one of the things that inspired Gareth and myself to get more seriously into dark sky advocacy, we actually met, is it Duncan White from Kilda uh, at a Galloway conference? Yeah, yeah. And that was when I realized, oh my goodness, UK is not anywhere near as dark as uh, New Zealand, but very, very committed to astronomy and dark skies and preservation. Whereas we were just sort of not really enjoying it or preserving it. So since then, we have sort of nationally, this is a, a comparison I showed to New Zealanders to inspire them to protect uh, dark skies. Having dark skies is one thing, but protecting them for the future generation is even more important. Okay, it's a, well, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating, um, yeah. I'll just put a little banner up there so people who are just joining us know what we're talking about. So the, this is um, light pollution, UK versus New Zealand. We have more dark sky parks in the UK than New Zealanders, but look, look, how, <laughs> look how much more light pollution we have. Even in the, yeah, even in, you know, Northumberland there, uh, right at the top, that that sort of blue tick almost that's that's just um, on the Scottish borders. That, that That's where we are and and that's the the international dark sky park but then look at what's available in in new zealand these whole expanses in the middle of the country there where it's completely black so you you that's completely unlight polluted then that area that's right wow ian Ian, if i can just point out put my welsh cap on for a second yes please yes look at poor wales there oh well never you never say poor wales (laughs) <laughs> Look at, we're trying to keep the dark skies you know we, we, we've been helping the people in the Elan Valley a lot yeah. uh, in Rayada where all the um, massive dams are that supply the water to, to Birmingham and then the Brecon Beacons uh, National Park is below that but there's no escaping all that massive light pollution uh, coming in from, from the Midlands there look at it, it's just unbelievable yeah. That, I mean, you, you know, you're not getting away from that. The reason that they're not dark there is nothing to do, that's to say, in the Elan Valley in particular. I mean, that's a remote place. And they work hard to keep all those lights down, minimize it. But there's absolutely nothing they can do about all that stuff coming from Birmingham and Manchester and all of that. You know, look at it. Just look at it. It's amazing. But that said, I must, I am very inspired by what's going on in the UK. Not only do you have all those. Uh, protected night skies. If you look at the statistics, uh, New Zealand is the same size as, as Great Britain. So geographically, we are the same size. We have only protected 2.4% of our land area. Uh, Wales, poor Wales, as Gareth said, has protected 17.6% of their land area. There are streets ahead of us when it comes to dark sky protection. Mm-hmm. So, so we feel inspired by what's happening in Britain to try and protect our night skies and enjoy them more. Yeah. And and what what is likely to is is there any plans or any likelihood of these areas getting more light pollution in New Zealand? You know, you've got these areas where it's completely pitch black at the moment. You know, completely undisturbed. Is is there a, uh, ever any risk of that changing? Does it need to be protected as such, or or? Or will it will it always just remain barren? Do you think? Yeah, no. All dark sky areas are under threat because of LED lighting coming in. That's that's a given. So globally, light emissions are growing by two percent per annum. In New Zealand, it's only one percent per annum. And uh, 
all of New Zealand is accessible. People live in all of those areas, it's accessible. So we, the Dark Sky Network, which we have sort of got going, is to help a lot of places to get protect their night skies. And as we speak, we have 23 members. So there are 23 spots in New Zealand that are working to get their night skies protected. Um, and, and the RI is in the future, future generations, you know, children's children sort of thing. So unless we protect it now, we'll start looking like British map for light, light emissions. Ian, just to let you know, we feel quite competitive with Wales. I mean, <laughs> I, I, that doesn't, that, that kind of surprises me for some reason. They, they, they stole <laughs> New Zealand's steepest street. Not so long ago. Oh we no! Way. All the all the measurements that we came <laughs> back, and, and now we find they've got more dark skies than us. So we're gonna, we've already won the rugby battle, but we're gonna take them on on dark skies now. <laughs> it's incredible the, the the comparisons between Wales and New Zealand that always keep being brought up about very many different aspects of life. It's, I never realised how much like Wales Wales is like um, the uh, the that area's version of Oceanic, isn't it? That's the area, uh, the Oceanic version of of Wales. And to be honest, that really appeals to me. Um, so I think the increase in light pollution in New Zealand is probably going to be the amount of uh, Brits who decide they want to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's it. It's the, emig- it's the emigrators. They're taking all the LED lights with them. Yeah. You say uh, that, you know, we've got, we actually have the Matariki holiday brought in. Nalini can tell you all about that. That's a really big for astronomy and, and an awareness of dark skies. So in yeah, New Zealand, we are very aware of our night skies. Wherever you live, if you're prepared to drive for about 20 to 30 minutes, you can see the Milky Way. Oh, wow. So that's such an easy thing. Even us, it takes us 20 minutes and we are in a beautiful uh, night sky. The Milky Way is draped over us. And there are two little dwarf galaxies which we can see like clouds. They're called the Magellanic Clouds. So we are very uh, blessed that way. And also, uh, New Zealand was the last landmass to be populated. And it was populated 700 years ago by the Polynesian navigators. And they navigated using the uh, night skies. So as a result, they're very familiar, their Maori astronomy is very advanced. And they also have built astronomy into their daily lives. There's a practice called Maramataka, which follows the phases of the moon. And Matariki is a... um, the Maori New Year, that is as Pleiades rises in the dawn after it's disappeared during the winter, uh, that's when it's winter solstice. So the sun is now moving across to uh, spring. So the Maori recognized it and they have celebrated Matariki for, uh, for, I don't know, thousands of years or definitely hundreds of years. And as a result, that's become integrated into their daily life. So this year, for the first time, New Zealand has made Matariki a public holiday. So from this year onwards, Matariki, which is rising of Pleiades at dawn, um, around June, becomes a public holiday. And there, there are a lot of celebrations. So we'll have the whole nation looking up at the dawn night sky to see Pleiades rising, and that will increase the awareness even more. So we are very excited about this new development. What a wonderful connection to astronomy that is, and it's amazing to hear stories about that around the world as well, because I think that we we have lost a little bit of a connection to the night sky like that. Because when you trace back history in many different countries, they're always they have a celebration around constellations, around movements of the night sky, and we've kind of lost that in modern day culture. So it's amazing to hear that that's been introduced as a thing in another in a country recently. That's amazing. Let's um, bring Ed Bloomer in, uh, Dr. Ed Bloomer from the Royal Greenwich Observatory, or an astronomer there, um, seeing the the map there of of light pollution uh, london of course is the epicenter of all light How's pollution your sky, Ed? yeah um <laughs> but you're you're, you're, you're you're here to, to to explain to us though that despite 
the light pollution that you have and, and Greenwich, obviously, right in the, the thick of the middle of London. And it's, it's, it's a fairly bright yellow sky these days. But there, are, there is astronomy that, that can be done by people, even if you do live in, in the big cities. Just explain to us a little bit about the things that people can do. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I mean, I'm just seething with envy uh, and stuff that our other guests get to experience. Uh, I, I've actually been to um, Brecon Beacon's uh, Kielder um, and Lake Tecpo, um, which was absolutely astonishing. Um, so I am very envious. Um, but you're right. We can still do some stuff. Um, I think in some ways, when you've got quite light polluted uh, skies, uh, in some ways, believe it or not, it can be it can be quite good sometimes for for beginner astronomers or people you're trying to convince to go out stargazing, um, because your your choice of possible targets is going to be quite limited. Um, you're not going to be overwhelmed uh, by uh, you know thousands of stars. Uh, that you can see. So what we tend to do is concentrate on uh, when we're doing things like naked eye astronomy, when we're just using uh, you know, our own eyes and equipment, we tend to try and concentrate on naturally enough uh, the brighter stars, picking out individual stars, um, and 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 trying to keep things pretty simple. Um, because you, I mean, everything that's been said so far is right. We we. Um, we've lost a bit of connection with the sky, I think, or I think a lot of people have. Um, and, you know, you do have to wait until it gets it, it gets pretty dark before you even start to see the beginnings of things. Um, so it is challenging. Um, but, of course, what we also want to do, because, you know, there's a huge amount of tourism uh, in, in uh, London in general, and uh, lots of visitors uh, from all over the world are visiting, visiting the observatory, um, you know, we want to... We want to try and talk to people and, and sort of arm them with um, a sort of enthusiasm for the hobby um, uh, and, and the subject and, and try and encourage them to just start with something uh, simple and then encourage them to go and uh, sort of look further afield as well. That's that's a big part of it. And uh, obviously dark skies are going to be very, very hard to achieve in a big city like London. It's, it's, it's nigh on impossible, isn't it? But um, what what limits or, or what 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 are you hoping for, or maybe the the Royal Greenwich Observatory uh, are hoping for to try and limit light pollution? Because as was mentioned before, in New Zealand, LED lighting is is probably the, the the main danger to to the the dark skies they've got. And I mean, we're we're surrounded by LED lighting in in this country, and sometimes that's. Um, put in an, as, as as something that is an improvement to the previous lighting that we had. They say it's more directional, but we are finding that the light pollution nonetheless is is still on the increase, and especially in big cities like London. What can be done to, to help limit that? that? That's a pretty difficult question. I mean, London is so big that getting any sort of consensus that stretches across the whole city is, 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 is pretty tough. I would like personally to see, um, you know, as technology changes. I mean, London's constantly in this churn. I mean, you know, I, I know we've got a long history, but uh, things are, you know, being built all the time and being deconstructed and changed around. So uh, I certainly think it it's something we should be thinking about all the time. I mean, light pollution is, it, it is pollution. Um, and, and sort of spilling all that light into the night sky, um, it, it isn't a good thing. So I, I think... Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I think I, I think rather than some sort of massive city-wide um, uh, sort of revolution, let's say, I, I think um, uh, possibly our hopes are more for sort of small steps um, to continue to uh, sort of protect places that are pretty dark. So things like parks. London does have a lot of parks. It's very lucky that way. Um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're, the observatory is in the middle of Greenwich Park. Um, and that's that's very dark. It's a small area, but it, but that part of it, is, at least, is is very dark. So these little pockets are important to um, well anyone who wants to do some stargazing. But you know, uh, we've got um, uh, uh, astronomical societies and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a huge difficulty um, when you have millions of people literally millions of people and huge amounts of industry and and and, and everything is is pretty bright um and sort of <laughs> and also sort of runs 24 hours a day that's the other thing but uh, <laughs> certainly it's a big challenge 
Yeah, the problem of a of a twenty four hour city. Um, uh, Nalini, to you, you were involved in setting up New Zealand's first dark sky reserve, the um, Al Ayotea Great Barrier Island Reserve, which. Um, was a huge achievement for you and something that you'd worked on, obviously, for, for a, a very long time. But to actually make this happen must have been a huge source of achievement for you. And tell us about that whole process, that whole quest to, to make this dark sky park happen and um, and how, how you how you got it over the line, got it all approved and, and made that dream a reality. New Zealand's first dark sky reserve was Kekapo. It's Auraki Mackenzie International Dark Sky Reserve. And that was achieved by a group of people. We didn't have an involvement there. Uh, Mount John Observatory is New Zealand's premier astronomy uh, observatory. And uh, they, in the 1980s, this was before the IDA was formed, they had put in lighting ordinances to protect the observatory, uh, scientific observations there. And then in 2004, there was a little... Uh, astrotourism business that started up. Uh, it was that business that suddenly realized that they can't take the dark skies for granted. So they got in touch with the observatory, University of Canterbury that runs the observatory, and the Minister of Environment at the time. And there was a group of about 15 people. Uh, most of them had PhDs, worked for three years, and they got uh, Tekapo. Uh, Ricky McKenzie accredited as an international dark sky reserve. And that was in 2012. And it was one of the uh, early places to be accredited in the world and uh, the first reserve in the southern hemisphere, etc., etc. Gareth and I got involved in Ayotea Great Barrier Island five years later. The view in New Zealand was unless you have a university, a massive observatory, and 15 PhDs working for three years, <laughs> accreditation done. But what happened in Ayotea was it is so dark. I mean, it can't get any darker than Ayotea is. Uh, getting the residents behind it was a challenge because, as Ed pointed out, when there are thousands of stars you can see, you get overwhelmed and you really don't appreciate the uh, night sky as much as, uh, basically, you only appreciate it as much as you know, whereas they haven't paid enough attention to knowing their night sky, they have seen it. So we worked with the people, that wasn't really hard because these are nature lovers living on the island. And the hardest was working with the Auckland Council to get the lighting management plan approved. They couldn't understand why they had to change the standards, etc. But the island was very strong-minded, and it took us some time to get that. Uh, because it has to be, lighting ordinances have to be legally binding. And unless Auckland Council approved it, it wasn't going to be legally binding. But altogether, the journey was actually a lot easier than um, you know people would have thought. We had Great Barrier Island over the line approved and accredited in about six to eight months is a very short run because, as I said earlier, there are no street lights on the island. So the lighting management plan didn't need to be hugely sophisticated. But the real uptick of that is a lot of these dark sky places in New Zealand felt they were never going to have the ability to get themselves accredited. But after seeing the IOTR effort to focus on the essentials, since then, uh, as I said, there are 23 places now pursuing accreditation. There have been two more in 2018 and 2020. The pandemic has set us back, but there are another two which are at very advanced stages uh, of getting accredited and another three or four which are fairly advanced. So um, what I'm trying to say is in the end, you need just three things to get a place accredited, the darkness. It's either there or not there, and it's easily measured. Outreach and the resident support, one has to have outreach and work with people. But as Gareth says, the love of the night sky is not hard to engender because it's very primal. So that isn't hard. The hardest part is getting the lighting under control. And retrofitting lighting can be very expensive. So there's a financial aspect to it. And what's helped 
uh, Ayotia as well as in New Zealand is the realization that the flip side of dark tide is astrotourism. And astrotourism is very, it goes very gentle on the planet because it's ecotourism, etc. So from an economic growth point of view, uh, it's been a really successful thing for New Zealand. Tekapo has shown economic growth of 15% per annum since it got accredited. Ayotia has shown a 16% increase in that first season, and Stewart Island has shown a 17% growth. So one of the things in New Zealand, a fifth of our exports come from uh, tourism. Tourism is a very vital component of our economy. 6% of our GDP, 11% of employment comes from tourism. So dark skies, having astro-tourism as, as its flip side, uh, has helped for its popularity. So we are very hopeful to get a lot of the land area of New Zealand accredited over the next five years or so uh, because of that. So in short, if you've got dark skies and people are behind it, the battle is really with the council to get the like, uh, and it varies from council to council, and they are usually attracted by economic growth potential uh, because it happens in regional areas as well. Actually, I'd like to talk to Ed about um, viewing in a uh, light-polluted spot. And and the, as Nalini pointed out, it's easy access for us here in Auckland uh, to get to a dark sky place. I jump in my car. If I can't stand the light pollution, I jump in my car. And in next to no time, I'm out on the West Coast, and it's a very, very dark place. Uh, but we actually live in the centre of Auckland. And uh, we we struggle. Centre of Auckland is not like being in the centre of London. But um, one of the one of the big things for us, Ed, in uh, for me anyway, doing outreach, um, has been um, I've just got a, a a new digital scope by Unistella, uh, and suddenly it's cutting through all of this light pollution. Believe it or not, and um, I never thought that the, the, the day would, the, the day would happen, but. Um, I actually did um, an asteroid occultation, and, and, and SETI sent me a certificate to say what a oh. great job I've done. And I'm sitting on my balcony. I can see the sky tower, sky covered in um, uh, polluted to death, and suddenly I'm doing, um, you know, asteroid occultations. And this is the new way. And it, for me, there are two aspects. You cannot beat a, a dark sky place. The naked eye viewing, looking up, wow! And if if the guys that you know, you guys in Kielder, you're doing your you know your proper packer observing. You know you need those dark skies. But for people who are living in in polluted places, it's not the end of the world. You can see these incredible things, and it's not just stars. You know we can see um, Centaurus A galaxy. I can see Omega Centauri. I can see 47 Takana globular clusters. I can see way out the Leo triplets. I mean, it's incredible what I can see with the latest technology. And I think this is the great thing for us urban dwellers is that the technology is now coming along. We're not, this is candle compared with, you know, the very best electric light. Newton has had his day and we are now looking, we are now seeing it through the Hubble Space Telescope's type eyes. So I'm a big convert. I'm well converted, as you can tell. And I just love it. I mean, I mean congratulations, first of all. <laughs> uh, I, I think it, it, it's a tricky one, you know, because, um, of course, we don't necessarily want to always recommend that, you know, people, individuals, that is to say, have to buy certain types of equipment. Um, but I think that there is so much technology that can help us. Um, and I think also a big part of that is... Um, you know, we can network a lot of this stuff. Of course, it would be great to to sort of live close enough to a dark sky site uh, that you could just, you know, sort of take a short trip there. Um, and so I'm not I'm not saying this is going to be, um, you know, a substitute necessarily. But of course, there are things like, um, you know, telescope parks, uh, robotic scopes that people can uh, interact with. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can share this stuff around. And, and by we, I sort of mean the, the, the kind of public engagement community. Uh, to make sure that people have access to lots of information so that even if they're not able to go directly themselves, they, they have um, resources and they have 
kind of good examples and that, and that all sort of fires people up and then hopefully uh, fr from from that uh, that group of interested people you're going to get a significant number of them that will uh well as you say it's it's, it's sort of tourism it's uh, you know you, you want people to then go and decide that that is if they're going to take a holiday or something like that that that, that you know doing some uh dark sky observing is a worthwhile part of of you know leisure time as well um, so there's, there's certainly a lot that we can uh, kind of tie together i mean i, I when i went to uh, Tekapo, it was not it was not as uh, it, i was traveling around new zealand it wasn't necessarily anything to do with astronomy but it's absolutely astonishing and so you know any anyone that i know that has is thinking of taking a trip you know i i try and recommend people go to it and um, kilda as well i mean is is so lovely if people are going uh, anywhere near that area you know you it's impressive enough that you recommend it uh, to people as well there are two aspects to what we do one is conserving the night skies natural night skies but the other part of it is introducing as many people as possible to the night sky as gareth always says he says in the daytime we don't know our place in the universe the, our nearest star the sun is blinding us to the universe so we're all putting the spotlight on earth and we get so caught up with what's going on in our day-to-day -day life but once the sun sets you we can see that we are just a little uh, you know piece of rock uh, spinning like crazy going around the sun which is an average star out of 400 billion stars in our galaxy which is one of 400 billion galaxies in the universe they're even talking about multiverses so that realization i we believe make people uh you know it's spiritual it's more gives them perspective more balanced in their everyday lives so for us showing the universe either naked eye or through dobsonian you know the newtonian telescopes or deep sky objects with the unistellar telescope it's all about waking people up to what's out there and seeing ourselves so outreach plays a big role in what we do and uh, we use every means available and this scope of garrets actually the views can be live streamed so he's actually done quite a bit of outreach to people in the uk uh, using this scope uh, it's daytime there but it's nighttime for us in new zealand uh, so it it's a, it opens up the universe to everybody Dampai, you're Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory. Tell us about the astro-tourism element that, that Kielder benefits from, because we have visitors from all over the world who come to Kielder Observatory, and some, of course, from the nearby towns and cities as well to get a, a great look at the, the skies above the observatory as well. But, yeah, people will go a long way for a great dark sky, won't they? Yeah, and I think the funny thing about it is, as well, is you don't have to go back in time very, very far to speak to somebody who's grown up in the UK and experienced a night sky where you can see things in, in the populated areas. Because, of course, in the um, 50s and 40s and, and into the 60s even somewhat, uh, we were a less populated island and light pollution wasn't as much of an issue as what it is today. But it's it's certainly been over the last 30 years, I think, that we've really seen that massive increase in population, that massive increase in light pollution. Um, but people have forgotten what the sky looks like if they are of that age or... Some people have grown up never seeing the night sky at all. Maybe never even acknowledging the existence of stars so much as well, which is always quite an interesting, uh, um, quite an interesting conversation or quite an interesting thing to see people experience for the first time. Um, so I think we're very fortunate in the UK in that you, like New Zealand, I mean, you have to travel a little bit further in the UK, but like New Zealand, we are just a, a very small island. You don't have to travel too far in order to be able to get to a dark sky location or somewhere where you can do some reasonably good stargazing from. I mean, even central London, that, and, and, and Ed will certainly be a testament to this in that the, the, you can do some really nice observations from central London. I, there's some people who um, take some stunning images from central London, including 
of structures that are, are orbiting around our planet, the uh, the International Space Station. Some of the images I've seen that have been taken from central London of that is just absolutely stunning. So it it isn't an inaccessible thing to people in light polluted areas. I think that's what I'm trying to get at here is that you're not trapped in that box. You can experience a night sky, certainly in the UK, um, with greater ease than you may have realised. Let's um, take um, some questions now. If you'd like to ask a question to, to any of our astronomers, because usually the best questions come from, from yourselves who are watching. So please get involved right now. Uh, put a, a comment in the box below uh, of, of this post on Facebook and they'll come through. Um, Tony Proctor says, with the telescopes that cut through the light pollution, what is the technology that allows this? And would using that telescope in a dark sky area make the viewing even better? Good question. Well, <laughs> I can tell you this, that, um, it does make it better to be in a dark sky place, for sure. Uh, but it is still so amazing in a light-polluted place. Um, I, I, as I said, I'm just blown away. And basically, they use, you know, camera chips. That's what they use. And you see these things in colour. I mean, it's amazing. I've just got the latest scope. Uh, the, the first one I got... Uh, you were only able to use it looking at your um, iPad or iPhone screen. The latest one I've got has actually got an eyepiece as well. And I demonstrated this at Auckland Astronomical Society, that's the largest regional society in New Zealand, uh, earlier in the week. And the people there were just stunned. And what I found is that people who are used to looking through... Um, uh, Newtonian um, reflectors, you know, the Dobsonian base, they are the ones who are most blown away when they see what you can see through a unistellar um, EV scope. Uh, because the colours, the the, the, the galaxy, it's like, you know, you, it's like you imagine Captain Kirk would see, you know, when he's, when he's flying <laughs> on the Starship Enterprise and he comes to a new galaxy. That's how amazing it is. I, I, I kid you not. I did not believe it. I did not believe it. I was one of the greatest doubters. I said, this is just marketing blurb. I'm just, wow. Every night when, it's a, when, when, when there are no clouds, I just go out there. I'm just so happy looking at these amazing sights in the sky. But I, it, yeah. it's, it's like the Hubble. It's like, it's like James Webb. It's using tech, the latest technology. It's not using glass. And, and just, you know, you're not seeing that image come through and then be pulled together and coming through an eyepiece. It is using technology. It is using digital technology. But wow, what an experience, I tell you. Yeah, just to answer the question on the technology, what you see is all about the photons reaching your eye. So if you look with the uh, only naked eye, you receive so many photons. When you look through the telescope, it, it has a larger collecting power and magnification. So an 8-inch uh, aperture will collect more light than a 6-inch aperture or a 4-inch aperture. And that's how it works, because it's receiving more photons. With the unicellular telescope, it receives more photons, and using a camera chip, it actually starts stacking them. So it puts first round of photons on top of the second round, third round. So by stacking these real-time, you can see the image improving. As you're observing, it starts faint, then it gets brighter, and then the colors come in. This is over a period of, say, 10 minutes or so. So that's the technology it uses. And, uh, you know, um, and if you want that real connection with your eye, you look through the eyepiece, and again, you see the photon stacking and the image developing in front of you. And naturally, in a dark sky place, you can see faint objects because uh, it's dark and there's less, less light pollution. Okay, hopefully that answers your, your question very thoroughly there. Tony, thanks for your question. If you'd like to ask one of our astronomers, one of our experts this evening on this live Kielder Observatory podcast, all you need to do is pop your question in the comments section uh, below this uh, video. 
on Facebook and they come straight through to us and we can ask our astronomers. Um, usually we, we do a little look ahead to what's going to be coming up over the, the next month or so in the in the skies uh, above above the UK. And um, I've, I've got my trusty book here, which is uh, from the Royal Observatory Greenwich. So um, rather than uh, check that itself, let's, let's, let's go to the Royal Observatory Greenwich <laughs> and speak to Dr Ed Bloomer, who might, <laughs> might be able to explain what, what May has in store. Because, of course, here in the UK, I know it's different in in New Zealand, where we're also connected up to uh, today. But um, here in the UK, the the evenings are getting lighter. We're heading towards summer, and um, things are changing in the night sky slowly but surely. They always are, I suppose. But um, we're moving into that that sort of springtime, early summer now. Well, uh, <laughs> don't don't quiz me too hard. Uh, I believe my colleague, uh, one of my colleagues, was editing this year's uh, night sky. We usually take it turn about. Uh, it's been a, a couple of years since I I, I did one. Um, May is a little tricky. Um, I think it's it, it's it's not a great time if you're in light polluted skies. Um, there's not not a huge amount up the 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 sort of winter sky uh, stuff is now setting in the west by the time the sun goes down, um, and the stuff that's kind of easy for the summer at the moment, you sort of really need to wait to the early hours of the morning. So. The thing I'm directing, say, planetarium audiences towards at the moment is, uh, you know, big targets like uh, the Summer Triangle, not quite at a particularly convenient time, unless you're super dedicated, but I try and sort of preview that. So as the as we go through the next couple of weeks, it's going to start to get into position where it's, it, you know, you're able to see it without um, necessarily waiting up to, 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 to very late or, or very early, if you look at it that way. Um, you know, ever popular is getting people to find uh, Ursa Major or specifically the, the, the Pleuraster and, and try and get them to um, uh, uh, find Polaris, find North. Um, uh, that sort of orientation is, is quite nice for connecting people with the sky. So that, that kind of sort of circumpolar region is, is in May um, what I've been uh, sort of concentrating on uh, quite a bit. Okay, there's a few things to to look out for, and uh, things are maybe slightly different in the in the northeast a little bit, are they, Dan? And and I know there's been one or two sightings of the the aurora as well in the in the northeast recently too. Yeah, and that's going to disappear as we start to get lighter nights as well. That's going to make it really challenging to see any aurora. But um, yeah, things are, things are nice at the moment. We've got the the spring skies are certainly very very present, very central at the moment. The thing is with the spring skies is the most interesting in objects i think are some of the more difficult to spot um so things like galaxies for example and um some of the nice nicer clusters and things i've got a great selection of uh, of, of favorite objects to look at, at this time of year favorite stars out at this time of year or one of my favorite stars anyway um, which is a lovely binary star called iota cankery there's two different colored stars nice to look at through a telescope and and of course the uh, the ever famous um, showstopper that it is the hairy eyebrow galaxy beautiful beautiful galaxy um, perfectly positioned between two wonderful stars um, and just a mere 55 million light years away so there's some some of some of the, some incredible objects out at this time of year to look at um, certainly through a telescope but for, for me i think this is one of the seasons where it is all about using a telescope in order to be able to see the really good stuff because the milky way is quite low down on the horizon doesn't rise until early hours of the morning um, so we've got to wait until a little bit later in the year in order to be able to get that, that more visually, immediately stunning stuff back that you look at in the night sky without the telescope. So. Ian, okay. I, I can recommend people jump on a plane in that case and come to New Zealand because um, <laughs> our, our night sky at the moment is really, you know, <laughs> Scorpius is coming up now is at the time that one can view it, which is, you know, around uh, 10 or 11 o'clock. And it is just incredible, you know. You see, you know, the Lagoon Nebula, Triffid Nebula. Um, um, you can make out M4 globular cluster. And if you've got a if you've got a unistellar EV scope, you can see the uh, Eagle Nebula in Serpents with um, the Pillars of Creation, which is really something that really mm-hmm. really touches your heart. Um, and then, of course, you can see in in a dark sky place, you can see. 47 Takana, uh, Omega Centauri, the largest of the globular clusters. Unfortunately, you guys in the north can't see both of those. But, of course, you can see Andromeda beautifully. 
and when when we were um in scotland for that dark sky conference back in 2017 it really blew us away to be able to just look up and see andromeda overhead that is mm -hmm. awesome we it's the one thing down here we get a very poor view of it's on the horizon for us very difficult to see we were at on chatham islands um a year back Melanie and myself looking at their dark sky possibilities there uh, and that's like the darkest place ever. It's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, hours and hours flight flight from Auckland. Um, and we could just make out Andromeda. But you guys in the in the UK, man, that is awesome. But I'm interested, Dan, about this hairy eyebrow. It's <laughs> 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 a hairy eyebrow galaxy. It's, it's, it's an absolutely stunning galaxy. It's a, it's its official name is uh, NGC four five two six. So NGC four five two six. It's in the Virgo cluster, um, and it is the reason why I love it is because it's perfectly positioned between two stars, and it's, uh, it's this diagonal lenticular galaxy. So it's quite bright in between these two stars. And the two, the, there's a great contrast and depth that you get when you look at it because the two stars are 700 light years away. But then this, this slither of light is 55 million light years away. And, and I kind of have another connection to it in that it was the first galaxy that I'd really seen a good photograph of in the mid-90s because it was taken by Hubble. Uh, there was a big uh, a, a supernova um, in this galaxy and Hubble took a, a, an image in the mid-90s of it as well. So, but I didn't know it was called the Hairy Eyebrow Galaxy until recent years so that just was like the icing on the cake it's got all of the things going for it does this particular <laughs> this galaxy yeah it's brilliant it's lovely i can't wait i cannot wait <laughs> go for it next time it'll look amazing through you know, your you <laughs> if i could just chip in with something on a much more sort of surface level um i mean you did sort of bring it up guys that even if you don't have anything particular planned Traveling to New Zealand, getting into the Southern Hemisphere, or vice versa, if you're in New Zealand and you're coming to the north, um, you know, you're seeing a different part of the, the celestial sphere. You're, you, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's worth it yeah. for that alone to just to just be somewhere and have a completely different sky above you is, is quite a, a, an interesting uh, experience in and of itself, even if you don't have a particular, you know, even if you're not armed with a, a you know, a, a powerful telescope or anything like that. Just being in a completely different environment is quite interesting to just be under different skies, I think. Absolutely. You know, when when I leave the pub in Hay on Y, the blue boy in Hay on Y, and I walk down to our little cottage and I look up at the sky, I, I, I feel like I've been transported to another planet, you know? <laughs> See that sky. What is that up there? So, Upside yeah. down. <laughs> yes. Maybe the beer. <laughs> well yeah there's the, there's the sky and the beer to factor in there i suppose <laughs> if you're in a dark sky place at this time of the year in the uk like we are normally there for the hay festival late may uh early june uh cassiopeia is always in the sky it's a very distinct constellation and then obviously uh the dipper and all of that and no, it's it's a, it's just naked eye viewing, and it's beautiful. The shape is distinct, and I've always enjoyed. Wherever we drive, the only thing is, as you get into the summer, uh, unlike in New Zealand, the sun sets really late in the UK. Mm. So, you know, so that what do you do in the uh, summer, Dan at Kilda? Uh, hope for the winter. <laughs> no, we still we still do things. We've got the, the great thing about being in the north is that we get to experience things um, which parts of the south don't. And things like noctilucent clouds during the summertime, for example. Noctilucent clouds are absolutely glorious structures to see with the naked eye. What, what is, is to be honest? I think it's a little bit more stimulating than the aurora. Sometimes is noctilucent clouds because they are just absolutely beautiful especially when they start to get the real blues coming out in them um and um we also look at uh, well last year was brilliant because we had many of the planets were visible during the summertime this year we haven't got so many of those so we will we'll focus in more on things like the sun um and and the brighter stars and the brighter objects that we can look at in the night sky we still we still stay open and we still observe um, but we do try and focus more around about around the the brighter stuff, and of course the sun as well, because the sun is a thing that 
um, often gets overlooked when we're talking about stargazing and astronomy. We, we forget about the sun because it's there all the time during the daytime. Um, so we do some focused events around observing the sun through our, through our telescopes. And this year, we have a new tool in our arsenal. We have a, a five-meter radio antenna which will allow us to uh, look at the sun even through cloud now as well and and other objects as well, of course, during the nighttime uh, that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Um, hydrogen gas clouds, gal- uh, black ho- uh, sorry, galaxies, uh, r- really high radio-, radio emission things that we can look at with our radio antenna this year as well. So it'll be a different summer, I think, for us and certainly a learning curve for us. Tell us about what you're wanting people to do at Kielder Observatory with the In Dark Sky Week. You want people to go outside and just simply take a photo of their night sky, wherever they may be. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah, so we're just trying to encourage people to go outside and really look up. So regardless of the sky you have, as we've heard from everyone tonight, there are things to see, there are things to look at, and we're just trying to encourage that. And I mean, even talking about bright skies, it's been touched on a couple of times, but bright skies, either light polluted or as we're moving into spring and summer, they can be quite kind to beginners within astronomy because Mm. the constellations are going to be more prominent. You're not going to be quite so lost as you can get in winter because we've had guests in winter who've looked up at the sky and they just, they've said, I don't know where to start. I can't even make out the brighter stars against the background. So it's a great time to look up and to start with astronomy, start your journey. And I suppose we're just trying to encourage people to do that tonight. Get started, have a look up and share what they can see. Thanks very much for joining us, Gareth and uh, Nalini in New Zealand. It's uh, been a pleasure speaking to you today and and thanks for uh, taking the time to join us. And uh, to you as well, Dr. Ed Bloomer, thanks uh, for your time this evening and uh, uh, enjoy what what, uh, Dark Sky may bring to London. I need to go and visit, though, because I need to see through the telescope that you have. I've never looked through the the big telescope. I want to see... Well, we are are doing some, you know, know, we are pretty light-footed, so we're going to go for... The moon. Uh, yeah, that's a good one moon, to go with. Um, <laughs> we're calling it Evening with the Moon, and throughout the summer, we've got a few dates where we are going to use the historic scope. Um, oh, with yeah. the it went in, and we still use it, so we're going to use that during the summer to aim for the moon, because that's, at least in theory, the easy one uh, to go for. So, yeah, come, come down. That'd be great. Okay. I'd love to see the moon through that telescope. I bet it looks amazing. It's amazing. Many thanks to all our guests in this latest episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast, to Gareth Davis from Dark Sky Network New Zealand, Nalaini Davis, Vice President of the Royal Astronomical Society of New Zealand, and to Dr Ed Bloomer from the Royal Observatory Greenwich, also to Ellie MacDonald and to Dan Pye from Kielder Observatory. Keep up to date with everything happening at Kielder on our social media pages. Follow Kielder Observatory on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and head online at Kielder Observatory. Org to find out all of the information you need about any upcoming sessions. Book in for your visit whenever that may be, either uh, in the, the near future or at the other end of the summer, whenever you want to come. Get on there, have a look at what's available and we would love to see you. And as Dan mentioned um, I think a little bit earlier, the capacity being increased ever so slightly as well over the course of the coming uh, weeks. So maybe get yourself one of those extra tickets as they become available. We hope to see you soon and we'll catch you in a few weeks from now for the next episode of the Kielder Observatory Podcast. <laughs>